Good Friday to you, July the 7th. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Mike returns next week. I'm glad to be along with you on what has been a very busy news week. And certainly a big part of that is our first guest. And we're going to dive right in here because there are so many moving parts. Every time I get the opportunity to speak with our first guest, I learn something, if not many things. I've learned about casinos and duffel bags of money, cash being taken into casinos here in British Columbia and people walking out with cleaned money, money laundering in our casinos. Uh, Long before anybody was acknowledging that, uh, Sam Cooper was on top of it. How that money was the proceeds from fentanyl sales in our country and certainly most definitely in British Columbia. How housing was being used to park proceeds from drug deals and money laundering, how now we're talking about policing and how China has set up covert operation police uh, offices throughout the world and certainly here in Canada. He is of the Bureau. If you have not subscribed to Sam Cooper's new initiative, the, the Bureau, he is the investigative reporter and founder of the Bureau. Search it. It pops up. You need to subscribe to this. Sam Cooper joins us on the line. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much, Jody. It's always great talking with you. Let's get right to your exclusive. Set the table for us, won't you? Yeah, Jody. I know we have two uh, two sessions here or two parts. So I wanted to. I was thinking I'll get into it. But you were we. You mentioned the casinos. You interviewed me back when I was at the Vancouver Sun. I remember so well. And you asked me, "Have you ever received any threats for this work? You're uncovering some some bad stuff and some scary people." Jody, I'll share with you first that after I testified uh, at the House of Commons uh, committee hearing into PRC threats of Canadian politicians, I was informed of a threat. And I can't say more than that. But since you asked me and you showed your concern, I'll tell you that, Jody. And it just uh, it shows to Canadians and people in Vancouver that have been with me and following me for years that this this stuff that I'm uncovering, it's real. These, the, our politicians are threatened. Our journalists, as I write in this report, we're going to talk about some of them are being influenced, even paid by China to track citizens inside Canada that China wants to wants to follow and intimidate. So this is uh, I just believe that Canadians we're already talking about a big story, but it needs to get bigger. So today's story uh, that is this week's story for the Bureau. I got exclusive access to the unredacted NSI COP, that's uh, Canada's bipartisan panel of parliamentarians that report to Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, about intelligence review matters. In June 2019, they filed this report uh, that would have gone to the Prime Minister and it outlined how Canada, that is the Trudeau government, has been warned since uh, late 2015 that uh, Canada's high officials knew Chinese police were under false pretenses operating in Canada. They were doing what we call back then the fox hunt operation. This was Xi Jinping's supposed campaign to go after corrupt officials and money laundering in Canada. But as I've learned, Jody, that wasn't anything. That wasn't the purpose. It was to surveil, harass mostly diaspora citizens in Canada uh, to find to gather intelligence in Canada And the point of this story is that there are repeated warnings to the Trudeau government, according to this parliamentary review, citing thesis reports that, uh, you know, RCMP knowledge that for years Canada knew 
Chinese officials were using fake visas to come into Canada. They were threatening, harassing, intimidating diaspora communities, and even arresting or threatening relatives in China to leverage people in Canada they were after. And uh, there's so much to unpack, but without losing my breath, the point here is that from 2018 onward, Prime Minister Trudeau received multiple warnings. CSIS was saying, we need an all-of-government response. Uh, everyone from RCMP, Transport Canada, uh, the Privy Council Office, everyone needs to be working together because it is so uh, fearsome what is happening. China is thumbing their noses at our laws. They're not stopping even when we diplomatically warn them, please follow the rules. They're not doing it. And... Uh, the point here is that Prime Minister Trudeau did not organize this urgent response that he was recommended to do. Sam Cooper is our guest. The Bureau is where you can read this entire exclusive report. And, and as you mentioned, Sam, there are many moving parts here. And one of the reasons why I laid out um, how we've followed along on your investigative journey for years and years. You referenced all the way back to Vancouver Sun. People know you from, from working with Global News for years as an investigative journalist. Now you have the Bureau and you're, you're working very focused here and, and it's a very targeted spot for people to, to get your, your such vital investigative journalistic skills at work here. Um, right off the top, you mentioned uh, being the target of threats and putting yourself in harm's way in order to unearth these incredible it, it it reads like a, a spy movie it reads like a like a very serious terrifying bond film uh script to 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 really see what is actually happening around us here in canada where we just sort of go about our business and and walk through our days and and never think that there are being people uh, who are being targeted in the way that you say fox hunt uh, has has come into play here. So NSCOP, so is it NSI COP is how you pronounce that? Yeah, that's how they say it in Ottawa. And very simply, you know, all serious nations have these uh, po- political uh, intelligence review bodies, both to, right. to look at serious issues and, and to, to hold to account. You know, we don't want intelligence arms to become too powerful. But yes, this is the body started by Prime Minister Trudeau to report to him directly. And what has come out of my you know, examination of this June 2019 report is just all kind. It, well, it's proof of the intelligence that was forwarded all the way up to the prime minister and all his senior officials for years about uh, a number of nations, including India and Russia, attacking our democracies, running diplomats that are really spies out of their missions. And the method of attack mostly focuses on diaspora communities. This is what the report says. And again, this is, it's just, as you know, Jody, in journalism, it's all about who knew what, when did they, when, when did they know it, and what did they do about it? And it's a failing grade on everything that matters uh, from this report in terms of what the prime minister knew and what he did. He was told, you should look at Australia and put in place uh, a Foreign ed- uh, Agent Registry Act, which, Jody, as you know, this is the, the very tool that American uh, justice has used to get successful prosecutions against these covert police stations in that nation. We don't have one here in Canada. The recommendations also were uh, amend the CSIS Act, amend the rules that RCMP has to follow so that they can more adequately investigate foreign interference. 
Jody, they haven't even made a foreign interference case ever from what I've read ever. in this document. And so, again, I can't stress it enough. Very clear recommendation. Prime Minister, please look into these changes. And they've done nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, this has been going on in our community for, uh, for four years since the Prime Minister was told, do something to stop it. All right, Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and we are speaking with investigative reporter and founder of The Bureau. If you're not subscribing to The Bureau, you should stop what you're doing and do that right now. Google it. It pops up. Sam Cooper is the investigative reporter. You remember Sam Cooper from the Vancouver Sun and from Global News. He has broken stories like money laundering at BC casinos, casinos across the country, fentanyl trade, the the Chinese government now uh, being involved in uh, some very nefarious acts, let's just say. Uh, there are some covert operations, some some secret police uh, bureaus, I guess. What's the right term for these? A secret police operation and, and such corruption and targeting of officials and the diaspora community here in Canada. And before the break, Sam, I mentioned the abuse of tourist visas that you've uncovered. I want so much of what you bring to the table here over these next few minutes that we have. Please educate us on what you've discovered in your exclusive. Right. So uh, in in this document that I examined, it shows that since December 2015, at a high level, uh, Canadian diplomats, the ambassador in that case, raised with Beijing that, quote, Chinese officials are involved in unauthorized activities with Chinese police in Canada. That is, Chinese officials were, were told that. It's sort of a, a diplomatic warning, uh, not the most stern, but these continue for two more years uh, until November 2017. In this time, CSIS is reporting throughout government that the diplomatic messages are having no effect. China is just thumbing its nose at both Canada's laws uh, in all levels and also Canada's high-level government statements that please stop doing this, essentially. So November 2017, again, Canada's embassy in Beijing discovered two Chinese police officials applied for tourist visas to, uh, as a fake means to travel to Canada to take part in fox hunt operations. So at that point, these, uh, we'll call them, you know, uh, mid-level diplomats put up the, the alerts within federal government. We should issue what's called a demarche, which is a, a very formal warning to another government for the quote here, for this egregious attempt to go around processes put in place between our two governments, end quote, uh, for, you know, to make sure that China's following our laws if they want to come to this country. But did that demarche get issued? No, it didn't, Jody. So the, the NISCOP, NSICOP report says, quote, no action was taken at that time or more generally since. So my a previous, to unpack that, what's the implication? A previous scoop uh, on this document on other matters said that uh, Canada, essentially, Global Affairs Canada, other, you know, departmental agencies have valued trade and the prime minister's political wins or objectives, such as, you know, traveling to India uh, over security measures when CSIS and other agencies are saying, hey, you need to do something about these diplomats that are really spies uh, within Canada. So at a high level, this is an example, I believe, this egregious abuse of visas Nothing is said back to China at a high level, despite recommendations. Uh, so this is more evidence for me that there's a, a blindness to uh, 
serious activities because some people in Canada's government are worried that that will harm our bilateral uh, relations with China, which, uh, as you and I both know, that means trade and sort of, you know, getting along with another country. Right. So we've seen that with uh, on so many levels. I mean, I'm just sitting here shaking my head with everything that you're laying forward because I'm, I'm hearing years, 2015, 2018, 2019. It's 2023. And we have witnessed so much disruption and we've like caught moments uh, between uh, Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Trudeau and the whole you're not you shouldn't be saying it like that because we don't like it when you do. It's like at what point? Does our country, do do our federal leaders need to be firm, uh, even with trade at the center? Like it it feels like that superpower that is China is is manipulating the Canadian government in ways that that are putting citizens in this country at high risk. Is that an overstatement, Sam? No, I would, if anything, a little bit of an understatement, a fair statement. But, you know, it's a perfect segue to another thing I found here, as you know, China uses diplomatic, extortive sort of means with Canada when they're angry with Canada, such as when Mun Wanzhou was detained. Our citizens yeah. get tossed in jail, right? They take actions against uh, companies in Canada for no reason. And in this report, very specific to Fox Hunt, I found the stunning quote that said, the RCMP was leveraged into you know, cooperating a little bit or maybe even allowing Fox Hunt activities when they knew that this is not this is not legitimate this is like spying in canada spying on our diaspora communities the rcmp reported to nsi cop that they had to balance cooperation with china on fox hunt against the threat that china would not assist on money laundering and fentanyl trafficking investigations jody these are direct quotes and they are stunning but as i i talked to an expert who told me it, it, it is stunning, but it's not surprising that China would weaponize the fentanyl trade diplomatically against another country to get their way. And this brings us back to 2017 in Vancouver. We talked, look, this is about just massive money laundering through BC's economy of, you know, fentanyl, heroin, cocaine. People are dying. And yet here we have China saying we won't help you, RCMP, on that matter. So for those who might challenge Sam who your sources might be, uh, your, your intent or your, your reasons for bringing this forward. Can you just give a summary of uh, if, a, quick, a quick reason why you're so uh, dedicated to unearthing um, all of these pieces o- almost to your own detriment? Well, it's certainly to my own uh, risk in some ways. And again, I'll leave it at that. Uh, but Look, uh, people have even speculated, you know, who are these uh, whistleblowers or leakers that went first to myself and then evidently to the Globe and Mail in this past, you know, eight months. I've heard people say, oh, they seem to be uh, frustrated or politically motivated. Jody, I can tell you that I do. I've been I've done this for 17 years now. I do a deep assessment of why people are talking to me and how credible they are. And all I can say is this, the people that have talked to me are not partisan. People were saying they cannot sleep at night because they're reporting up all the way to our prime minister these concerns about infiltration in our government and nothing's happening. These are people motivated by uh, a love for Canada, a love for Canada's multicultural diaspora communities that are under attack. 
And that, you know, in a nutshell, my motivation is the same. This is my same values. Uh, I love Canada. I love investigative reporting. I love the truth. I love balance. And so that is everything that goes into these stories. Stay safe. And we appreciate your hard work as always. Sam Cooper, thank you for taking some time out for us today. My pleasure, Jody. Thanks. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. A big, heady conversation to be had here about the gridlock in housing, uh, specifically at the municipal level. And, and we've seen the provincial government sort of step in, tentatively step in, directing municipalities to clear the way for housing to get built more quickly. Yesterday at this time, we were discussing permitting specifically in the city of Vancouver. We had some callers from the city of Surrey as well and how the permitting process is so bloated and so difficult to navigate, expensive to navigate, untenable for most who want to even just refresh a powder room in their home. And next thing you know, there's $10,000 worth of fees associated with getting a permit for that. But what about the gridlock piece of this puzzle associated with the public hearing process. There's a fascinating series to be read in the TIE. And Alex Hemingway is joining us to talk through that series with us. Alex is an economist and public finance policy analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good friend of the program, Alex. Welcome back. Thanks for doing this. Good morning, Jody. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's get to public hearings on housing and how people clamor for them to continue and broaden. And you make the argument and reading, I recommend that people read this uh, Thai series about how the gridlock is being fed by these hearing processes that we see ourselves bogged down in. Can you lay it out for us? Sure. You know, when you look at, uh, I think we need to just quickly take a step back and, and when you look at how we, uh, organize the construction of new housing in our cities, uh, we, we have kind of a default in place. So, you know, th- there are permitting delays of the types that you were uh, talking about earlier, uh, but there's no rezoning and no public hearing to build a detached house in, in a city like Vancouver or most of our cities. But they are required for every single apartment building. So essentially every proposal to build a new apartment is is put on trial in our cities and we wonder why there is a rental housing shortage. Now public hearings are part of that. The the way that we organize and structure public hearings uh, is is broken and the participation in them is very skewed, but it's all bound up in this broader system of site-by-site rezoning uh, and public hearings. So I think first of all we need to uh, uh, deal with that issue of uh, 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 our default forms of housing and, and sort of the geographic scope of the way that we make decisions. You know, when we're in a housing crisis, do we really want to be uh, our elected officials to be spending hours and hours micromanaging and improving uh, every single apartment building and, and sitting through multi-hour public hearing processes? Okay, that's part of it. But And then the other piece is, okay, if we're going to uh, uh, broaden the scope of our decisions, make more uh, decisions at a citywide level, at a regional level, at a, at a provincial level when it comes to land use and, and, and approving new housing, which I think we should, uh, then we need to deal with how are we going to do public engagement in a more meaningful way. And, and we can do a lot better than the existing uh, public hearing process, uh, which, is, which is really not very uh, uh, representative of the public at all. 
Right. So going back to you, you touched on having community plans and zoning bylaws, bylaws, and and then rezoning. Don't we have a pretty significant framework for what each area, each community can tolerate of the heights of buildings, how they're going to be built, the the footprint of them. There are all kinds of terminology uh, around these uh, that make it ever more complex for for those of us in the in the public just you know following along and trying to understand why we've already had a discussion about let's say the broadway plan that's going to have x number of buildings that are done this tall and then we come to the point where okay we're ready to build this building and it's like well we've decided instead of eight stories it's going to be 42 stories so we're going to need to take that back to public inquiry it's like well why did we do the plan why did we spend millions upon millions of dollars to do the plan and do the study, do the research, go through council, get it approved, have it done only to come back and break ground and then be paused at, oh, no, we can't break ground because we've decided to change what this is going to look like. It feels like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like that is happening more and more often. And and the red tape is getting thicker and deeper while our housing crisis is getting uh, worse and worse by the hour. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. And when you look at something like uh, the Vancouver plan or the, the sort of citywide plan that's been under development for for several years uh, in city of Vancouver, it's been uh, rightly, in my view, criticized as a plan to make a plan to make a plan, because right. it, what it does is uh, it sets out some parameters to then do more neighborhood level plans. And then those plans in of themselves do not approve housing. There's still uh, a rezoning required for every single new building. So it is, that's exactly what it is, is a plan to make a plan to make a plan. And I think that's why you see, uh, and this is increasingly, I think, not a left-right issue, not a partisan issue. You see, you know, the, the new mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, are affiliated with the NDP side of things, talking about cutting red tape in relation to housing. That's that's absolutely right. You see uh, the provincial government uh, stepping in here, uh, uh, with the Housing Supply Act and, and setting uh, targets for municipalities to build housing. We need to see the details on that, but I think that's moving absolutely in the right direction. And so, you know, th- there's a lot of talk about bringing new supply online and, and making the processes easier, but we need to see real action on the ground. And and sometimes the devil is in the details. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, missing middle housing in, in Vancouver and, and uh, the council is bringing forward a proposal on that. But when you dig into the details, you find out that actually uh, the, the staff proposal is only going to increase the, the net or space of housing on a given site by 16%. You know, you can build a fourplex or a, a sixplex, but the square footage is barely increasing. And we know we need larger units for families to live in in this yeah, city. Nice. So, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of moving parts here, uh, and uh, uh, we need action on all of these fronts. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and we're continuing with our guest, economist and public finance policy analyst of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternative, Alex Hemingway. And the question going into... Uh, this half hour is, are there too many public hearings for new housing? Obviously, public hearings have played an important role historically, um, but but are they having the impact today uh, that is negative to what is so desperately needed to address our housing crisis? Public engagement obviously uh, needs to be a part of it, but is it being used as a tool now to stall things perhaps? And the new 
Housing Act brought in, uh, Housing Supply Act, I should say, uh, brought in by the provincial government to sort of force the hand, if you will, of municipalities to move forward on some of the the stalls that we are seeing. Alex, I want your opinion on how perhaps public hearings should modernize or how public engagement yeah. needs to adapt to the urgency that we see in our housing crisis. Yeah, I think there's there's two main pieces here. If we want to do meaningful public engagement and dialogue on land use and housing questions, first of all, we need to do it at the right scope. So uh, not at uh, not at the level of every individual apartment project. We need to be talking about citywide plans, uh, regional plans, and, and uh, 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 provincial policy on, on zoning and land use questions as well. So getting the scope right is key. But we also need to be more innovative about how we do public engagement because our existing public hearings uh, are not representative of the, pub- of, of the public at large. Uh, renters are, are drastically uh, underrepresented uh, in most public hearings, uh, and of course, of course, renters are you know the, the ones bearing uh, the worst brunt of the housing crisis and shortage. And so, uh, what we put forward in a recent report, uh, myself uh, along with my co-author Simon Peck at UVic, is uh, moving towards a model of public hearings uh, that's along the lines of a citizens' assembly. Uh, uh, so, essentially, using a democratic lottery to select who's going to participate because we know uh, a wide range of folks are affected by these decisions and you can't just rely on whoever has time to show up in the middle of the day uh, mm-hmm. to to a public hearing and you can't ask renters you know who are affected every time uh, uh, a housing project is rejected or slowed down to to run around advocating for rental at every single project you know it's easier for opponents to organize uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, if, if there's something being built just down the street from you, the sort of the not in my backyard crowd, they're sort of self-organizing because they just have to show up for, for the project near them, whereas renters uh, are kind of expected to show up for every single uh, uh, hearing. So, so using a democratic lottery, that's a model that's been we've used here in British Columbia. Uh, uh, the Campbell government used it to uh, put forward a citizens' assembly uh, deliberating on a different issue, electoral reform. That that actually that assembly did some really great work, and and international research uh, shows that this type of citizens' assembly uh, model delivers high quality deliberation. It actually allows people to be in dialogue with each other in the way that they aren't in in public hearings. They can tackle complex. Uh, topics and still come up with high quality decisions uh, and, and, and decisions that less reflect their own personal uh, priorities and, and more begin to think about, you know, the effects on the broader community. And I think a lot of people want to do that, but we haven't set up a, a good way for that to happen. Like most issues, Alex, people who are against something will show up and people who are for something will say, "Okay, well, I'm for it, so I'm going to stay home. So having a lineup of people speaking against whatever it might be uh, doesn't represent the greater community. And I think that that speaks to your point and to this report. Let's talk about the the system of site by site rezonings uh, that we're seeing uh, and the public hearings that go along with it when we're trying to build apartments or, you know, for that missing middle. Is there not a way to be pragmatic about this at the municipal level? Do you think the the provincial government stepping in and and saying, hey, we're going to give you six months to figure out a faster way to do this. And if you don't, we're taking it over. Is that is that the best next step? 
I think it's going to help. It, it's one of it's one of the steps. And you know, we're actually seeing uh, in other jurisdictions uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, in in New Zealand. Uh, among others, senior levels of government stepping in in different ways to, to deal with these land use questions and say, you know, look, that a housing crisis is, is something that doesn't just affect the neighborhood. It affects a city, a region. It affects our province-wide economy and, of course, our, our well-being as British Columbians. And uh, there, there's a role for senior levels of government to play. Okay, so with the Supply Act, uh, the provincial government is stepping in and, and going to set targets. Let's make sure those targets are ambitious enough. That's going to help. They're also talking about, and we're expecting to see in the fall, some direct uh, upzoning from the provincial government. I think that's very important, too. And that's what uh, uh, we saw actually with great success in New Zealand. Um, mm. uh, so the national level of government there has gotten involved and directly upzoned. Uh, we got some early evidence about how that worked in the city of Auckland, which was a which was an early actor on this issue, they did significant upzoning. So not just, not just uh, tinkering around the edges, not a 16% increase in floor space like is being talked about in the Vancouver Missing Middle Policy. They upzoned their city by about 50% overall. There's wow. some variation across the areas. And guess what happened? Housing supply increased dramatically and rents uh, flatlined. So uh, rents adjusted for inflation in that city uh, uh, are actually a little bit lower than they were uh, when that program was brought in, whereas other cities in the same country continue to see uh, rents increase. So that is uh, an important thing that we can look at as well. And, and and the last quick thing I'll say on this point is, you know, we need non-market housing as well as a big part of the solution here. Uh, mm-hmm. We need more public investment in housing. And these types of zoning issues affect a nonprofit and private developers alike. So if you ask uh, uh, nonprofit housing developers, the costs of these site-by-site rezonings and public hearings, the delays involved, the direct costs involved, the, the uh, construction cost escalation that occurs while they're waiting to get their project offline. Typically, you're seeing uh, the rents in those new buildings increase by about $100 a month, uh, uh, higher than they would be uh, for every single unit uh, 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 in the absence of, of that uh, broken system of uh, site-by-site rezoning and public hearing. So this has an effect on non-market and market housing alike. Alex, I only have one minute left to go here, but I have to squeeze this in. Is it time for uh, the governments at all levels to address the preciousness of the Vancouver Charter? How precious, you know, the view cones and the single-family home areas and the precious neighborhoods and the zoning, the the defensive zoning, really, around much of Vancouver. Um, Is it time to address that? Can it be? Uh, we need a big change. We need to, uh, you know, I think one way of characterizing the system we have today is it's a ban on apartments on the vast majority of our city's land. Uh, and even in the places where you're allowed to build them, you have to jump through hoops to do it. That has to change. And that wasn't always the case. You know, you look at some of the beautiful old apartment buildings in neighborhoods like Mount Pleasant. A lot of them were built 100 years ago. They're, they're beautiful. They're dense. They use the full lot line, things that are just aren't allowed today. So we need a big change uh, on that front. And that's something uh, we we have the power to do. And I think uh, provincial municipal governments alike have to uh, play their role because we're in a crisis and we have to act fast. Alex, as always, I learned something when we chat. Thank you for doing this. Thanks a lot, Shetty. 
Jody Vance in for Mike. He's back next week. I want to uh, pivot to something that we've likely all come accustomed to the term self-care, right? What does self-care mean to you? Take a moment, think about it. What does self-care mean to you? Because for some people, it's going for a walk uh, in the trees. It's it's going for a swim. It's it's getting out and moving your body. It's it's doing things that that calm the nervous system a little bit, just to make. Or it's visiting with a friend, or it's having a sleep in. It's little simple things, right? But for some people, and certainly there is a self-care movement that might actually do more harm than good. Wanting to talk that through, we connect with Dr. Michelle Cambolis, a mind-body health specialist, a meditation teacher, a registered therapist, one of the best in the province, if not the country, uh, and an acclaimed author of When Women Rise, among other things, but her most recent book, uh, When Women Rise. Michelle Cambolis joins us on the line. Good to talk to you again, my friend. Nice to speak with you too, Jody. And the, I mean, starting off with that question is brilliant. What does self-care mean to you? Because it's become quite convoluted. We know the importance of self-care, but it's become this massive marketplace. And for many just another thing to perfect. Isn't that something, right? When you when you think about it, because it's supposed to, you know, put your put yourself first. How how do you feel about that? But then, if you feel guilty that you're not putting yourself first, how is that care? If it's on your to do list, how is that care? If it's if it's uh, something you feel like you cannot achieve greatly enough because other people to be seem more relaxed than you after their self care, like it's just everything yeah. gets overdone it feels. Overdone. It's another thing to feel guilty about. Almost every client that I speak with has some degree of self-care anxiety. So they're either caught in this compulsive cycle that leads to self-care burnout, which is a very new thing. That's where you're participating in so many different appointments and classes that you're not actually resting. Others feel some level of self-care care guilt because they can't fit self-care into their life and we know the importance of it and you see all kinds of people on these beautiful wellness retreats doing you know yoga and sipping adapted adaptogen tea and because our brains are designed to compare we then feel like we're we're feeling short and then we have another group of people and i would say most just feel so overwhelmed and inundated trying to figure out what to prioritize, what works, what doesn't, and um, and what matters most. So, Doctor, what about, you know, the social media piece? I mean, looking it up, in, on Instagram alone, there are more than 35 million posts with the trending hashtag self-care. 35 million. Like, how does that impact people? When you look at that and say, well, clearly I'm, you know, behind on my self-care. That doesn't make me feel good. Doesn't make people feel good. Well, and isn't it bizarre that self-care, which is the premise of self-care, is really coming back to the basics of what we most need to thrive has become a competitive sport. It's become so marketed and so branded um, that we feel that we're falling short because we're not matching all of these images of, mm-hmm. um, beauty and health. I mean, the marketplace for wellness is four and a half trillion dollars worldwide. So you can imagine the amount of advertising that we're di- digesting daily 
telling us that in order to feel better, we need to buy our self-care. Yeah, the amortization of of self-care is really, and wellness overall, like it's hard to parse out what is good for you and what is just a good sales pitch for you. Right. A lot of confusion there. And, um, and so it's really important when you're trying to assess things like, uh, you know, supplements and, um, uh, naturopathy, which is, um, really important, um, that we're turning to some of these natural modalities for healing, but, what do the peer-reviewed articles say? So often they're yeah. purporting these outrageous benefits, but when we really do a deep dive into the scientific evidence, they fall short. So there's a lot of movement, certainly with the federal government, to um, start to uh, regulate some of these um, uh, integrative modalities, which I think is a really important step in the right direction. It protects the consumer um, and it helps educate the consumer. But these are all things that um, we need to <laughs> start to get our head wrapped around. Most importantly, um, I think coming back home to that question that you started with, but what does self-care look like for me? And, and in my mind, every moment of our life is an inv- invitation towards self-care. When you... Right. Um, just take a pause and come back to the moment and your breath and, um, uh, you know, move your body and listen to what it needs and start to intuitively tune into um, those natural messages. Our mind-body system is telling us what we need all the time. We just need to stop and listen. Yeah, so we don't necessarily need to hit Amazon to to Google search the hashtag self-care and buy whatever comes up at the top of it as the recommended for you. Michelle Cambolis is a doctor, uh, a registered therapy, uh, a registered therapist, uh, Dr. Michelle Cambolis, author of When Women Rise, mind-body specialist and meditation teacher. You Do you work in the, the self-care uh portion of society from a from a physician standpoint. So can you give us from your learned position the signs we might be doing self-care wrong? Are there signals we should be looking for? If you're feeling guilty when you're not doing self-care practices, I would really take a look at your relationship with self-care, what it means to you, Um, what's getting in the way of natural self-care, what you're buying into in terms of um, what you believe self-care needs to look like. Um, I think it's really important that we um, shift our mindset towards, um, uh, you know, self-care just um, being integrated into our life in natural ways um, rather than something that we have to um, plug in. Otherwise, somehow we're falling short. I mean, it's really, it's about looking at your mindset. So guilt is something to watch for. Anxiety around self, self-care self is something to watch for. Um, and uh, if your schedule is, is just becoming overwhelmed with your self-care practices, I think it's important to look at the ways that you might be using self-care as a way to numb out from your life. 
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We're talking with Dr. Michelle Campolis, registered therapist, and we need to dive into dopamine, Michelle. It's a subject matter. You and I were talking offline about this a couple of days ago, and you said, you know what we really need to do is have this chat on the radio. So here we are. Where are we at with the dopamine chasing in our lives right now? Well, we live in a society that's like a fire hose for dopamine stimulation, and we are dopamine-seeking humans, Um, but with the amount of digital media that we're um, exposed to, we're getting these hits of dopamine constantly, which lead to a dopamine imbalance. And so so dopamine... um, uh, really activates the reward pathway. So of course we're constantly seeking it. It sets off, um, good feelings from the brain center and, um, we just want more, but the problem is we're getting so much dopamine that in order to compensate, the brain starts to down regulate our, our dopamine production, which can lead to feelings of depression and just that lackluster feeling. And I mean, how many among us um, start to feel agitated when there's um, a moment of quiet or solitude? Um, we feel that we need to fill it or, or pick up our phone because we're so strongly um, addicted to this neurochemical. So for many of us, it's become a real problem. And um, so the trend is towards a dopamine detox. Um, It's certainly a lot more complicated than doing a a dopamine detox, but certainly um, doing doing this kind of a, a detox or blackout periods for the things that you can sense that you were addicted to Um, Mm. can allow you enough space to be able to just self-reflect and look at um, your relationship with these um, different factors um, in your life. And it can be food. um, It can be sugar. Certainly it can be um, technology. It can be romance novels. I mean, um, we can get our dopamine hits in all kinds of different ways. It can be likes on your Instagram. It can be retweets on your on your Twitter. It could be, you know, how your uh, friends interact with your Facebook. Social media is steeped in the dopamine hit, isn't it? Oh, I think that it's probably the biggest factor for most people when it comes to dopamine dysregulation. And um, it can really interfere with our lives and um, and unfortunately, our relationships, the number of couples that come to my office complaining about the fact that their partner just isn't present and they feel disconnected from them, that their phone has become more important than um, than the quality of connection within the relationship. And it is um, it's leading to a lot of pain and distress for many. So how do we begin to step back from that? How do we wean ourselves from the the chasing of the dopamine? Well, I really like the idea of taking a long break and just seeing what that feels like. And very quickly, you'll see what you've been missing in, in your life. And we've been given this one beautiful life that we know of. And if, if we're on our phones constantly and chasing dopamine, we're missing the beauty that's right in front of us. And once you put these factors aside, 
it doesn't take long before you start to see what's most important. And then you naturally don't want to go back to it. You naturally want to start to put healthy parameters around it because you see what it's robbed you of. So um, taking a period of time without it is my strongest re recommendation. And then, um, you know... Can I jump in there? Because what, what should we prepare ourselves for when we take that pivot that you're recommending? Because it, it totally is commonsensical to say, okay, we need to back off of that thing that we are chasing, uh, looking for that hit, hit, hit that's no longer feeding that part of our brain, stimulating that release in our brain. Um, what should we expect to endure, I guess, the in-between of, of, of pulling back from those things that give that hit and, and experiencing and, and enjoying, I would say, um, learning from it. You said sugar as an example. You know, giving up sugar for me, I found that, and, and I didn't give it up and like I don't eat fruit anymore. I just stopped using processed sugar because my sleep was disrupted. So sleep was super important to me. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just try that. And at first it felt you know, not great to just not have any sugar in my coffee or not have any sugar, whatever, just backing off of it. But I, and within just barely a couple of days, the payoff of the sleep, I was like, Hey, I don't need sugar anymore. I'm good. Cause that sleep is great. <laughs> right? Like, so when people are, are trying to back off of the thing that gives them the hit, how do you navigate that in between time? Expect withdrawal sim symptoms and, and plan for that. So, you're quite right. There is an in-between period that can be very uncomfortable, like any uh, detox from addiction. And so um, if you can be planful around it and make sure that you don't have uh, high levels of stress or um, those factors that take you into the the dopamine addiction, um, that set, so in other words, set yourself up for success, expect that you might be fatigued, expect that you might be irritable, that you might feel um, down. So as the, as the brain system is um, shifting in terms of the dopamine regulation, there is that dip. And like yeah. sugar withdrawal, um, expect that dip and uh, keep coming back to your why. Why am I doing this? Why is this important? What is my intention here? And let that root you into your commitment. And um, hopefully that will see you through, through that short-term phase of, um, of uh, regulation. Withdrawal. Yeah, regulation. And interesting, though, all of us know the difference between a long weekend and a true vacation and giving yourself the opportunity to recalibrate so you can feel the effects of a true vacation, if you will, from those things that are not serving you uh, in, in, in the day to day. Because we all, like you said, drinking from a fire hose. It's, it's really a lot and a collective a lot, a global experience that we've all gone through the same thing for the last three years and the fallout and the tribalism and the silos and the angst and the anger and, the, and, and so much of what we've seen since then. Um, it's a lot to recover from. And I think we all need to give ourselves a minute. Yes, go easy on yourself and know that this is an ongoing process of just figuring out our own needs. And uh, if you choose to go this route, um, 
and you're feeling the benefits, write those down so that you can go back to them again and again as you get pulled into um, some of these distractions and um, uh, activities that give us that mm-hmm. short-term boost of pleasure, yeah. but long-term don't benefit us. Right. It could even be toxic stuff. It could be that text from your ex and you keep in it because it's like, a, oh, it's what I'm used to. I'm conditioned. I need it. I'm going to hit it back. I'm going to use it. We all just need to step back from all of those things. Uh, Michelle Cambolis, Dr. Cambolis, thank you as always. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.